Good morning, Tim Allen here from Calvary Alliance Church in Minot. As you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of churches are not having Sunday services. And so we're pre-recording our sermons so that you can enjoy them Sunday morning. In November, I preached on Galatians chapter, 16, chapter 5, verse 16 through 25. And I spoke about what it takes to walk in the Spirit. This morning, we're going to cover part two. And that is the blessings we receive when we do walk in the Spirit. Now, as we go through that sermon, I want you to keep one question in mind. How is your walk in the Spirit? I hope you enjoy the sermon. Good morning, and welcome online to the Sunday morning service here at Calvary Lanch Church in Minot. As I stated in the little snippet before this sermon, we're going to be preaching out of, or I'm going to be preaching out of Galatians chapter 5. So if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 25 is what we're going to cover. Verses 16 through 25. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we could still worship you in spirit and truth in the midst of this pandemic. And even though, Father, our daily routines have been disrupted, Father, the one thing that's constant is you. And we thank you that you continue to lead us in peace. And so, Father, as we explore walking in the Holy Spirit this morning, I pray, even though this sermon is being recorded online, I pray, Father God, that it would touch those that would hear it. And that, Father God, we would examine ourselves as to how we are walking. Thank you, Jesus, for this time. May your blessings be to everyone who hears this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in November, I gave a sermon on walking in the Spirit. In fact, that sermon was basically one of two sermons that the Lord gave me as it related to walking in the Spirit. Now, in the first sermon, I spoke about how Paul was dealing with very serious issues in the church where a Judaizer was pressuring new Gentile believers to follow the law and become circumcised after they had received Christ in faith. Now, within that sermon, I focus on how we are to walk in the Spirit and that it first requires one to have a solid, healthy relationship in Christ and that the desires to be led by the Spirit is a conscious act of the will. And that we are to yield in that decision, thus allowing the Holy Spirit to empower us and also to fill us completely. So establishing how we walk in the Spirit, let's now look at the blessings we receive when we do walk in the Spirit. But before we do that, let's read the scriptures that we have for this morning so that we can get the full context of what Paul is saying. And I'm reading out of the ESV in chapter 5 of Galatians, starting with verse 16. So please join me. And Paul writes, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
There is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. And things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, is peace, is patience, is kindness, is goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So let's begin to unpack what Paul is saying here in just these few verses. And there is a lot to unpack. We certainly can't just fit it in a 30-minute sermon. I'm not saying this one's an hour and a half, but that's why I'm doing two sermons on the same Scripture. So let's look at verse 16 right up front. And right away, we see one of the first blessings that we receive when we walk in the Spirit, and that is... If we walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul begins his admonishment to the Galatians to walk in the Spirit so they wouldn't gratify the desires of their flesh. Your version might say they either live by the Spirit or led by the Spirit. And what this means is a following of the Holy Spirit is a choice. It's a decisive act of our will. And although the workings of the Holy Spirit is a supernatural working, it still requires a human action in yielding, in discipline, and obedience. The difference, however, between a purely human choice derived from our own will and a choice to follow the Holy Spirit is that when we follow the Holy Spirit, we unlock the power to be obedient to Him. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, and this is Jesus talking, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, this power is just not unto salvation. This power is just not unto being an effective witness. This power is just not to be an effective discipleship maker or disciple maker, excuse me. But it is power to live this life in Christ. And when we yield, we receive that power unto obedience. And what are we to have power over? Paul says the flesh. The word Paul uses here from the Greek is sarx, meaning human nature in its simplest terms. Now, human nature is defined as the general psychological characteristics, feelings, and behavioral traits of humankind, regarded as shared by all humans. Now, we all know that because of the fall of man, these psychological characteristics, these feelings that we have, the behavioral traits that we have, have all been corrupted because of sin. And that's based on God's word, not my opinion. For Paul himself said, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
But what about the feelings? Well, Jeremiah describes this in, in the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Your version may say desperately evil. And who can understand it? And what is it about humankind? Behavioral traits? Paul once again says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we see the Word of God has revealed that sin has corrupted each and every one of those human nature traits. And so our flesh then, stands in opposition to God in every aspect. In fact, Paul addresses this again in Romans when he says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. I think we need to let that sink in for just a second. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Doesn't say opposed. Doesn't say, ah, they don't agree. It doesn't say, man, he really doesn't care for it. It says it's hostile to God. Now the flesh we have is evil. And as Paul said, it's hostile. And what drives it is desires, and that's the second word we need to understand. The word desire used here by Paul comes from the Greek word which has, which means a longing for. An intense internal longing that motivates you in a specific direction. You see, our flesh has desires. These desires have existed since birth and have increased exponentially as we've gotten older and more wise. These desires are selfish, self-centered, self-gratifying, self-serving, and self-righteous. Since the fall of man... Men and women alike have been ruled by their flesh. And although some may have been able to curb certain elements of the flesh by moral teaching or holding to a certain set of values or the laws of the land, if you will, they all have been shown to be weak in their power. And so desires are what drives us. It what produces a longing in us. And as it regards to the flesh... Those desires are for the flesh. But now in verse 17, we see that there's also another desire at work in us, and that is the desire of the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 17, Paul reveals the great conflict that exists between the Spirit and the flesh. For the flesh is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit contrary to the flesh, and they are opposed to each other. And they can never cooperate. They can never coexist. They can never share the same property. One would be in control more than the other. And that depends on us and the decisions we make. Brothers and sisters, ever since we gave our lives to the Lord and received His Spirit, there has been a battle raging within us as it relates to desires. For prior to this, you were a slave, held captive to the desires of the flesh, but now you have been set free. And the desires of the Spirit now draw you unto Him, Him being Jesus. 
And when we draw upon the Spirit, He keeps us from doing the things we want to do in the flesh. I often talk about this as as having a temptation, and the temptation leads me to a doorway. But when I get to the door, the door is locked. And that is because of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes that door is unlocked. And it's a choice whether we enter in or we don't. And even then, the Holy Spirit will give you power to choose. But I want to just say this. Praise God, there is a struggle. Praise God, there is a war that rages within us. Praise God, there is a conflict that stops us from doing the things we want to do in the flesh. Yes, I would desire for God to rip out of me those things that continuously cause me to sin. Because I hate sinning against my Lord. I hate the power of the flesh. But praise God, there is a struggle. And you know why? Because it means the Holy Spirit resides within you. It's a confirmation that the Lord is doing a work within you. Yes, it's unpleasant. Yes, you wish it would just stop. And for some sins, it does. For others, it's a continuous struggle. But praise God that there is one. Now, at this point, to understand fully what the flesh is, let's move down one verse. Let's go to verse 19, and let's see the breakdown of the flesh so that we can gain a deeper understanding of what Paul is saying. Now, in verse 19, here's where we begin to understand the works of the flesh. And let's be first aware that Paul segments these works of the flesh into three categories, sexual, religious, and finally, people sin or sins we project on others. The first is sexual sins. And the ones Paul talking about here is the sin such as adultery, having sex outside of marriage, fornication, having sex before marriage, homosexuality, lesbianism, incest, intercourse with a divorced man or woman. These sins were obviously very present in the time of Paul writing to the letter writing his letter to the, to the Galatians. But it is also prevalent in ours as well. And in my opinion, I think culture has a lot to do with it. I don't think there's been new revelation that allows certain sins such as these to exist. I think it's a cultural shift that has caused people to be more sensitive. And dare I say, be more accepted by society and culture. Regardless of the type of sexual sins that we talk about, they're all about self-gratification for pleasure. They are the sins of lust. Next, there's impurity. Similar to sexual sins, the Greek word for impurity lends to a more perversion of sexuality, as if it can get any worse. In fact, they use the they describe this impurity as the pus that would ooze out of a wound as a graphic picture of the flush of the flesh when it's infected with impurity. Now that's gross. But it does give you a vivid picture. Then there's sensuality. A person under this sin is one that is consumed by and driven by thoughts of sex to an addiction, such as pornography. 
Earlier this year, I spoke with a young man that was uh, involved in every single one of these sins. He experimented with homosexuality. He was committing adultery. He was engrossed in pornography. And he even dabbled in perverted sex. And in speaking with this young man, he was so lost, he didn't even comprehend what he was doing to himself and to his family and the destruction it was causing. In fact, he wasn't shy about sharing any of it with me. And so I counseled him best I could given the situation and the specific circumstances I was in. And I said, you know, sexual sins of the flesh are bottomless pits in which the desire can never be fully satisfied. It'll just continually crave for more until there's nothing left. Nothing good ever comes from sexual sins, impurity, and sensuality. It destroys you from the inside out. Now from these sins, Paul moves to the religious sins. And those are, first of all, idolatry. Which is the worship of false gods and idols, and those false gods and idols can be you. Whenever we take over the throne where God is to preside, we elevate ourselves above God, and then we become our own God. An idol is anything that replaces God. It could be money. It could be possessions. It could be your career. It could be children. It could be spouses. It could be family. Anything that is more important to God, more important than God, is an idol. Now, additionally, Paul also means to dabble in paganism. Not necessarily given fully to, systematically, but to dabble in paganism. Such as participating in pagan rituals, but not fully invested. The one that comes to my mind is Halloween. How it has become a marketable endeavor that even some churches fully embrace. Next is sorcery. The word used in contact here is for magical arts and divination. And it also includes witchcraft. And within that, the poisoning or the use of drugs. It is to conjure up the spirits and then place themselves under the control of them. It is very dangerous to play with the supernatural within the evil realms. Now, What is interesting when you look at these religious sins is it reveals the inner desire that God has produced in us by virtue of being his creation and that we are designed to worship. I remember a a tribe in the Brazil, in in the Amazon, who 
after being discovered uh, by the outside world, had made monuments to like Cessna planes that had flew over years prior, and they worshiped them. We have an innate and created desire to worship. And in the absence of worshiping God, we will worship something else in an attempt to fill that void that lies within us. This is especially true with those who use drugs. In fact, the word sorcery comes from the Greek word pharmakeia, which, from which we have the English word pharmaceutical. So in both cases, whether it's idolatry or sorcery, it derives from an absence of worshiping God and the innate desire to fill that void. Spiritualism in the, in, in the U.S. today is at an all-time high because people are seeking and wanting answers to life. And only Christ has the secret to that life. Now, from the religious sin, Paul now moves to the sins against others. Now, we may never have fallen prey to a sexual immorality or sensuality or idolatry or even sorcery. But I would bet we have all certainly have fallen for the sins against people. Let's look at them. The first one is enmity. Enmity means hatred. More specifically, hatred towards others and even... At times, hatred towards God. It is the opposite of love. In fact, it holds no love, no kindness, no mercy, no grace, no forgiveness. It is a consuming sin, as with sexual sins, and it will destroy you from the inside out. Next, there's strife. Strife comes from the Greek word that means to be accusative, argumentative, and one who sows discord, meaning to create a division between people. This sin usually comes from a deep-seated position of self-righteousness and pride and even insecurity. And it is one of Satan's most effective and preferred weapons. Next, we have jealousy, which is the desire to possess that which others have. It is seated in discontentment and an ungrateful attitude towards God and what He has provided you. And it also comes from a spirit of insecurity. Next, there's fits of rage, which is a passionate outburst with hostile feeling and action towards another. It shows a severe lack of love for others, a lack of inner peace, and a lack of self-control. Then there's rivalries which is self-seeking and self-centeredness. Then dissensions, which is sedition and undertowing, pulling against unity. Sedition was one of our favorite terms whenever we did uh, disciplinary action in the military. When someone failed to follow a direct order, it is to undermine the authority and to work against the unity of the unit. That's what we used. That's what it means. Then there's divisions which is to establish factions and cliques and seats of power. And we see that happening here today. We see it in D.C. We see it in our local governments. And dare I say, sometimes, unfortunately, we even see it in the church. Then there's envy, which is different than jealousy. 
and that you hate the person who possesses something you desire to have, and it can lead to hostile action in order to obtain it. Then there's drunkenness. That's self-explanatory. Then orgies, which doesn't necessarily mean what you probably think it does, as it's more related to carousing, which really means unrestrained partying. Now, Paul concludes this list by saying, and things like these, which is to say the list is not exhaustive, and there's more, unfortunately. In fact, I believe Paul identified the prevailing sins of the times in Galatia in order to drive home his point, that some of them in the church may have been actually operating in these works of the flesh. Obviously, the Judaizer was. Now, you're probably wondering why I went down this list and explained each one. And the reason why I did it was to ensure that we understood each one and that we didn't just pass over them because sometimes that's what we do, don't we? We just kind of pass over our sin. We don't really take a moment to stop and reflect on what we're really doing. And as a result, we don't realize what we're doing until it's too late, until the Holy Spirit convicts us. And if we don't stop, we don't recognize, then we don't understand the effect it can have, not only as us, as people, but our interactions with others, but more importantly, our fellowship with God. That is why it's so important for Christians to continuously examine themselves and pray as a psalmist says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be a grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, after Paul lists the works of the flesh, he now gives the church a warning, and to us a warning, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what is Paul saying here? Because this needs to be explained a little bit because some have concluded that Paul is saying that you can lose your salvation if you fall prey to one of these sins and just simply sin in that regard. And that is not what Paul is saying. Paul uses the Greek word preso, P-R-A-S-S-O, which means a habitual use. Paul could have used a host of words to describe occasional or at moments, but he doesn't. He uses the word that describes a habitual use. Now, what does an habitual use mean? It's something ingrained into your conscience that you do automatically without thinking. It's a part of your natural actions. In other words, it's part of who you are and how you respond naturally. Paul is not talking about an occasional moment of temptation when you give in to a sin, for if he has, he himself would be disqualified by virtue of what he's talked about in his letter to Romans and his own battle with sin. So we know he's not talking about losing one's salvation. So what Paul is saying is that those who live in the flesh habitually are not of God because they do not possess the Holy Spirit who convicts them of their sin and unrighteousness. In other words, their pattern of living is in the flesh. And it is an outward sign that they are not of God, as the Holy Spirit does not reside in them. 
So why then did Paul list these works of flesh and give them to the church? If he's speaking about those who live in them. I think he did it for two reasons. First, he wanted to remind the church of the workings of the flesh so they never forgot. You know, when you put something out of your mind, you don't recall it, then the warning that it provides doesn't seem to have a way to resonate. But if we are in the Word and we're reading the Word every single day, we are reminded of how the Lord wants us to live unto Him. And that includes reading through the works of the flesh. But secondly, I think the reason why He did it is that even though we are in Christ, we can be susceptible to its temptations, meaning the flesh. Yes, we sin. Yes, we can fall prey to the workings of the flesh. But we have received power unto the Holy Spirit to overcome them. Resist it and no longer be ruled by the flesh. And so the first blessing we received when we follow the Holy Spirit is that we do not have to walk in accordance with the flesh and succumb to its desires because we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. It no longer rules over you. It can tempt you, but it has no dominion over you unless you yield to it because of the Holy Spirit that resides in you. Now, let's back up because we forgot a verse, and that's verse 18. And let's unpack the second blessing we receive when we walk in the Spirit, and that is this, that if we walk in the Spirit, we are not under the law. We're not under the law. Now, what does this mean? Paul says earlier in Galatians that the law came about due to transgressions and established a set of rules not only for conduct, but also for worship. As these rules were mandated, they had to be followed or fear punishment. As a result, a legalistic approach to life and worship was established. But through Christ, who fulfilled the Levitical law by hanging on that cross, freed us from the bondage of the law. And we now live a life that is relational and not legalistic. It's a relationship. And this is what Paul is saying in Galatians. Unfortunately, at times we fail to grasp this and we fall into the trap of seeking validation of our salvation through works and following a set of rigid legalistic practices, such as becoming circumcised, which was the issue in the church of Galatia. And when this happens, we begin to assess our relationship. Now listen to this. When we base our relationship on a legalistic approach and not on grace, then we will succumb to the legalistic Judgment and its condemnation. For it has been by grace you have been saved, not by the law. The law was incapable of saving you. But it was only by grace. Recall the rich young ruler. Do you remember him in Matthew? Who asked Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Right from the beginning, the rich young ruler 
came from a legalistic approach to eternal life. What can I do? What works must I fulfill? What deeds must I accomplish? And Jesus' response, in my opinion, he was setting the young rich ruler up to reveal what really matters. He told the rich young ruler that he was to follow the commandments and then listed them. And when the rich young ruler assessed himself against these commandments, thus further revealing his legalistic approach to salvation, and found himself to be perfect, something very interesting happens. He still didn't feel validated. And he said, what do I still lack? I've done all this. I've followed all those rules. What do I still lack, Jesus? And this is what Jesus told him. And, and may I paraphrase what Jesus said? I'm going to paraphrase it. Jesus told him, you lack me. You lack me. It's about me. You need to follow me. I didn't think I'd get emotional with nobody here. But anyway, <clears throat> brothers and sisters, we're no different than the rich young ruler or the Galatians. At times we measure our relationship in Christ by rules and a legalistic approach. And when we don't feel like we have accomplished it, the condemnation comes from our failure to keep them. And we feel unrighteousness. And that is fertile ground for the enemy. Brothers and sisters, it's about Him. It's about a relationship that is based in grace and love, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, when Paul says, if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, because it's about a relationship and not a performance by observing some rules or some legalistic approach to righteousness. You know, I, I was raised in a church that was works plus faith. And when I was raised in that church, and I would go every week to confessional because you were obligated to, I would go in there and pour my heart out. And I would go and I would do my penance. And then I would go throughout that week and make the same mistake again and I'd be right back into confessional. And I never felt righteous. I never felt in relationship with God. I was walking through the motions. I was doing everything I was told to do. I was doing everything the church told me to do and I felt nothing. But when Joel Hyde introduced me to Christ, I was introduced to the person of Jesus for the first time. I was introduced to a relationship, not a rule. 
And I have been forever changed as a result of it. And so the second greatest blessing we receive from walking in the Spirit is that we are not under the law. And we don't have to follow some procedural set of laws in order to earn our salvation. It is by grace that you have been saved. Now Paul, in verse 22, reveals reveals the third blessing we receive when we follow and walk and be led by the Holy Spirit. And that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at each one of these fruits. Actually, let's look at the fruit. It's not plural. It's the fruit. First, we see love. And we know this love to be an agape love. It is a love from God. It is a love we have for each other. Or it's a love that we have for others. Or we're supposed to have for others. Let me rephrase that. It is a perfect love. Defined by Paul in Corinthians where he describes a love that is from a pure heart. It is a love that saves. It is a love that forgives. It is a love that is compassionate. A love that cares. A love that binds. But it is also a love that empowers you to love others. You never thought you could love. For God's word says we are able to love because he first loved us. That person you don't think you can love, you can in Christ. You can in Christ. Next we see joy. Besides love, joy is my favorite fruit of the Spirit. And it means a calm delight. It is not to be confused with happiness, as happiness is an emotional, or it's an emotion, and it's fickle. It comes and it goes. I get a day off, I'm happy. I have to go to work, I'm not happy. But joy is a deep-seated cheerfulness that is able to transcend fears, anxieties, and the stresses you face. As a military man, one of the things we do is we come up with acronyms, where we take a word and we dissect each letter to have it mean something. And for joy, I've always used the acronym, Jesus over you. Yes, Jesus resides in you, but he also encapsulates you and surrounds you. And no matter what you're going through in life, Jesus is over you. Never forget that. For he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. Next, we see peace. The word Paul uses here means a peace means peace in Christianity, the tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatever sort that is. Now, that's not my definition. I got that from a comment, from a commentary, and I thought it was, it just summed up what peace is. You know, if the current situation that we're facing with COVID-19 and the pandemic shows anything at all, is that this nation, we lack peace. And the reason we lack peace is because we place it in the wrong things. We place it in money. We place it in food. We place it in security. We place it in safety. We place it in health. And dare I say, toilet paper? Really? We need to remember what Jesus said when he proclaimed, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. 
not as the world gives you do I give you or give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Boy, if there was ever a verse for today, John 14, 27, and quoting Matthew is it. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Walk in that in the day in which we live. Now after peace, he talks about patience, which means forbearance, long-suffering, slowness, and avenging wrongs. This patience is not a common patience as far as dealing with a trial or a situation. It's how we interact with other people with a calm response towards other people. Then there's kindness, which is tolerance towards others with a gentle spirit. Then there's goodness, which is a benevolent and beneficent disposition with all kinds of kind and soft and winning and tender, either in temperament or in behavior. Then there's faithfulness, the conviction or belief, respecting a man's relationship to God and divine things. A steadfastness in living out one's faith. Then there's gentleness, which means a mildness of disposition. And finally, there's self-control, which is the ability to master one's internal desires. It is also termed as meekness. These are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They are not individual kinds of fruit from different trees. They are a singular fruit produced from a singular tree. Whereas the works of the flesh are plural and each one carry their own form of destruction, the fruit of the Spirit is one that produces the life of Christ in the believer. I love what Psalms 1-3 says in relationship to this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You know who he's talking about? Us, if we are walking in the Spirit. He's talking about us. Now Paul says, against such things there is no law. Now what does that mean? Paul is saying that the every work of the flesh is revealed by the law. Makes sense, doesn't it? In other words, the law reveals the flesh and its works. And as a result, is under, as a result it's under judgment and condemnation by the law. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit is not under the law. Meaning this, the fruit of the Holy Spirit cannot be produced by following a law. The fruit of the Holy Spirit cannot be produced by a legalistic religious life. It cannot be produced in only one way, and that is through walking in the Holy Spirit and being empowered by Him, keeping in step with Him. Now, verse 24. How then can we receive such fruit? What is the process by which this occurs? And the answer is because our flesh has been crucified with its passions and its desires. 
You see, your flesh was crucified when you placed your faith in Christ Jesus, who was crucified in your place. When we gave our lives to Christ in the flesh, our flesh was hung on that tree and it was crucified and it no longer has dominion in your life. For it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Although the pangs of temptation may come, if taken to the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit and the strength that he provides, it will die a quick death upon arrival. That's how we were able to receive the fruit of the Holy Spirit is because our flesh has been crucified and it no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. Paul then concludes in verse 25, as I will do, with an imperative statement that if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Paul is revealing that although we possess the Spirit of God, there is a human response of the will and that we are never to lose sight of the fact that the choice is not under one of of minor consequences, but one in which we entreat the flesh and its condemnation and judgment from the law or one of life that bears the fruit of God. Now we have examined the full spectrum of Paul's message to the Galatians as it relates to walking in the Spirit. Let us now apply what we've heard. Paul reveals that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the first blessing. And that we are not under some legalistic religion where we have to earn our salvation. That's blessing number two. And it is by way of grace that when we walk in the Holy Spirit, we will produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is blessing number three. So let me ask you this question. And I asked it at the very beginning in the snippet before the sermon. How are you walking? How are you walking? It's something we need to examine within ourselves. Am I walking in the Spirit? Am I led by the Spirit? Or am I walking in the flesh? Brothers and sisters, I like what the New Living Translation says about verse 16. It says, to walk in this new life that you have been given. To walk in this new life that you have been given. I may be paraphrasing that because I don't have a copy here. But walk in the life that you have now been given. Why would you want to return to a life of the flesh? The very flesh that drove you to Christ. Why would you want to return and live a life that you were trying to escape? I was trying to escape that life. I didn't know it until truth was revealed. Then I knew that God was calling me unto him, even at a very young age. Why would you want to return to the life that you were delivered from? 
Every morning we should ask ourselves that. How am I going to walk today? And I'll leave that with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's exhortation and admonishment to the Galatian church, which is also an exhortation and admonishment to us that we need to walk in your spirit. And when we do, we are so blessed. Father God, I pray for anybody right now who has heard this sermon and is struggling with a sin in their life. It seems like no matter what they do, they continuously fall. Or the same sin keeps trapping them over and over and over. First, Father God, I want to pray that they would understand that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Second, I would pray, Father God, that they would get on their knees and repent of their sin and call upon your Holy Spirit to empower them to live a life of repentance. And Father, I pray that you would just surround them with your love as you surround us all. Father God, help us every day to walk in your Spirit. Give us your power to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.